This week on the show, Alan and I are going to be showing you a very interesting interview we did talking about using FreeBSD to drive a robot. You won't want to mess this one. That plus all the latest news is heading your way right now. Now, episode 148, The Place to Be, a robot that is, recorded June 29th, 2016. Hey, I'm your host, Chris Moore. And I'm Alan Jude. Hey, we're glad to have you guys with us this week. Uh, we got an exciting episode. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the first time we've really talked about robots before, yes. like on a BSD Now. So uh, this just has me all giddy and yes. excited. I like robots. And when you mix robots and BSD, it's kind of like all good things. Yes. You know, kind of like drive through alcohol and firearms. Or, or, oh, wait, maybe maybe not so much. <laughs> no? You don't have those in Canada? I think they're just mandatory down here where I live. But anyway, and I'm not kidding about drive through alcohol places. They, they really do have those mm -hmm. out here. It just seems like all kinds of bad idea. Anyway, I digress. Yes. We have an exciting episode coming at you today. <laughs> Lots of good stuff to talk about. But uh, I guess we should just dive right into the headlines mm -hmm. of the day. And Well, I guess you put this up at the top, yes. Alan, well, so you really wanted to lead with this. I it think. was just where there was a blank spot in the show notes because I bumped oh, the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. APFS story, right? Yeah, convenient, convenient. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Well, I guess I'll let you, uh, I'll let you give, go ahead okay. and do the honors in this one since I wrote the news for the next article. Okay. So go for it. Uh, so the results of the FreeBSD core team election that we reminded you about last week uh, came in this morning. Uh, mm -hmm. I think technically they're not official for another 90 minutes, but I have the results. So there. Uh, Boom. <laughs> yes. There you go. So the, uh, <laughs> the ninth core team has been elected and they will officially take over from the eighth core team on uh, Wednesday, uh, July 6th, which will be next week. Uh, okay. And uh, so many thanks to all the outgoing members of the core team. Uh, you know, yeah, Gavin Atkinson, David Chisnell, um, Gleb Shmirnov, Robert Watson, and Peter Wem, uh, which I kind of guess kind of gives away the, <laughs> the other part. Uh, so we have mm -hmm. the results of uh, the election. Uh, 214 of the eligible 325 people voted in the election. Uh, so that was only a 65.8% voter turnout. Uh, which wasn't as high as previous years. Uh, I'm not sure what that was about, but we'll have to see if we can't uh, fix that for next time. So I guess if we just do a... <laughs> we'll, get to well, if we screw it up bad yeah. enough, everyone will be like, ooh, we really need to vote these suckers out. Yes. <laughs> uh, and there were 14 eligible candidates, and so we have the results here. Um, the top nine candidates in descending order of votes received uh, in first place was Ed Mast, uh, an incumbent from the existing core team, but uh, he moved up to first place this time. Uh, with 84.1% of the vote. Uh, second place was George Neville Neal, 82.2%. Uh, uh, Baptiste Rousson with 79.9%. Uh, those are both incumbents as well. Uh, John Baldwin returns to the core team. He wasn't mm -hmm. on the last core team, but he's on this core team at 78.5%. Um, nice. Hiroki Seto uh, is also an incumbent, and it's back at 77.6%. Uh, and then some new person no one's ever heard of, uh, Alan Jude, 68.7%, followed by Chris Moore at 61.7%. No one ever heard of him either. Exactly. Wow. Uh, Benedict Reuschling, at, uh, who's hmm. my mentor, uh, at 56.5%, and uh, Benno Rice at 50.5%. 
Oh, great. Yes. So uh, everybody on the core team got at least 50% of uh, the people that voted voting for them. So that's uh, mm-hmm. quite a bit of confidence in the core team that was elected there. Uh, and yes, as Des always notes at the end of the results, uh, there was no tie for ninth place. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. So yes. there's no recount yes. or automatic uh, recount just, or anything like that? Because he, he lists the top nine people by votes, and then to make sure, you know, he has to say there's no tie for ninth. But uh, it's because the the FreeBSD charter actually has special policy for when there is a tie for ninth place. Uh, which, mm-hmm. I, if I'm not mistaken, the eight people who aren't tied uh, vote for which of the two people uh, will, oh, will make, take up the ninth slot if there is a tie. Okay. Um, so yes, uh, BSD Now and the entire BSD community would like to extend their thanks to all those who uh, stood in the election for the core team. Uh, you know, there's, uh, I guess, five people that uh, ran in the election who didn't get voted in. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that was uh, quite a number fewer than the last couple of times. So hopefully we can improve sure. that as well. But anyway, and uh, next week's core team meeting, which will be the last meeting of Core.8, uh, will actually encompass both core teams and uh, we'll deal with handing over responsibility for anything outstanding from uh, the people who are leaving to the people who are arriving. Okay, well, that ought to be fun, mm-hmm. a good meeting. Yes, uh, look forward to see what uh, the new core team accomplishes. Mm-hmm. You know, for sure. Uh, for those aren't familiar, the, the FreeBSD core team doesn't really dictate anything, but they uh, can be responsible for cheerleading certain changes to get things mm-hmm. done. And uh, yeah, I know both Chris and I have some ideas about some things that could use some cheerleading. So, well, we'll, we'll have to bring those up in a meeting yes. and see what comes of it and what yes. other members think. But yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. And uh, of course, I know for my part, I'm happy to take feedback from you guys out mm-hmm. in the audience as well. Even if you're not a committer, if you have questions or things that you need to bring up that you think somebody from Core needs to look at. Um, I'm sure you have no trouble finding my email. <laughs> so it's around on Al, you know, ditto for Alan yeah, as well. I'm sure. So, but uh, anyway, yeah, well, good, good, uh, good show, and uh, congrats again to all the other winners as well. And of course, thanks for the service for everyone who stood not only for the eighth but all the previous core teams yes. as well. Um, I know that's uh, sometimes a thankless job, is what I've been told, and we're about to yes. find out. So there'll be, be much complaining. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> well, cool. Let's move on to the next story yes. here. So for, uh, next up, we have a Why I Run OpenBSD, which we've run a few of these in the past, but this is, yes, this is a new one. So okay. recently posted, but uh, it's a good uh, article and slash kind of blog post talking about why the poster in particular has moved from open, uh, moved to OpenBSD from Linux. So actually a lot of really good quotes in there. The guy who writes this is very quotable. So I wanted to read you um, some good snippets of the story here. But uh, he starts off with, uh, one thing I've learned during my travels between OSs is consistency is everything. Most operating systems seem to at least keep a consistent interface between themselves and the binary slash applications. They do this by keeping a consistent API, which of course is the application programming interface, and ABI, which is the application binary interface. If you take a binary from a really old version of Linux and run or build it on a brand spanking new install Linux, it likely will just work, quote unquote. He said, this is great for applications and developers of applications. Vendors can build binaries for distribution and worry less about uh, their product working when it gets out in the wild. And uh, sure, this binary built in 2016 will run on Red Hat AS 2.1, for example. But, and of course, there's always a big but when you start with something like that, right? Uh, The author then goes on through another important part of the consistency argument with what he dubs uh, the UPI, or the user program interfaces. In other words, while the ABI may be stable, what about the end-user tooling that the user directly has to interact with on a daily basis? 
Mm-hmm. So the next section he goes into here is this incons- inconsistency seems to have come seems to have come to be when Linux started getting wireless support. He said for some reason someone vendors maybe decided that if config wasn't a good place to let users interact with their wireless device. Maybe they felt the device was special. Maybe there were technical reasons. The bottom line is someone decided to create a new utility to manage a wireless device. And then another one came along. And pretty soon there was IW config, IW, if config, and then some funky thing that let Windows drivers interface with Linux. And one called IP. And he says, I'm sure there are others I'm forgetting, but I prefer to forget. I have moved on to greener pastures and the knowledge of these programs no longer serves me. That's a really good point. He then goes on through a run-through of how he evaluated the various BSDs and ultimately settled on OpenBSD. He said, uh, OpenBSD ultimately won the showdown. It was the most complete, simple, and coherent system. The documentation was thorough. The code was easy to follow and understand. And it had one command to configure all the network interfaces, which yeah, I can see that's definitely a selling point. He said, I didn't have wireless, but I was able to find a cheap USB adapter that worked by simply running MANK wireless and reading about the USB entries. It didn't have some of the applications I use regularly, so I started reading about ports, intuitively via man ports. So uh, really actually a well-written article. Definitely mm-hmm. worth your time to take and read and see why he ended up picking open, but uh, aside from the things we mentioned here. But uh, I think he really makes – I wanted to discuss with you a little bit, Alan. I think he made a really good point about the user programming interface yep. or the user process interface, how, whatever it was he dubbed there. But I, I could see how that would be really confusing because at the end of the day, if you're the one pushing the button – and your button keeps moving or changing. Well, yes, that, that was always the it, thing that... No, that's a cost. That always made me want to not update, say, Thunderbird, uh, because they move yeah. one of the buttons, and it's like, I have muscle memory. It's, the, the button's got to be in the same place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, that's one of the projects I hope to work on uh, and, and cheerlead as part of the core team, is I want to have that consistent interface for as many of the config files in the base system as possible so that sure. you don't have to learn all these different config file formats you know so where i fall on that is yes something like if config keep do yes. you know put everything in if yes. config that should be the source of truth when it comes to say setting up the network yes. right if for some reason we'll say down the road if config is no longer functional for what we needed to do okay and we're going to introduce a new application to take that over well i wouldn't keep both i think that's where you run into the problem all of a sudden you have all these different things and they're all installed on the system and which one do you well this one does that bit and this one does that it just gets really confusing you you really should have one utility if you're going to replace if config or something like it replace it already don't don't do this hacky oh we're going to have a few things here and a few things there and if you cobble enough together you can kind of do what you want that just kind of sucks so yeah my opinion on that but uh, anyway, yeah, I thought it was a really, really well-written article. Mm-hmm. I've seen uh, a bunch of interesting work going forward on uh, if config to try to standardize the syntax a little bit because right now uh, a bunch of stuff works. Uh, if you put it out of order, it still works, but it doesn't work out of order if it's for IPv6. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, you know, we should probably just make it work the same everywhere and have it be consistent. But uh you know, there's obviously you don't want to break anybody's script or whatever, and that causes problems. Sure, but yes, sure. Uh, you know, my biggest annoyance when uh, started using uh, CentOS 7 for you know one particular application that required it was the fact that if config isn't even installed by default. It's like, <laughs> well, how am I supposed to find out what IP address this thing got from DHCP? <laughs> how am I supposed mm-hmm. to do that? 
Yeah, my thing was trying to figure out where they stored the IP configuration on disk so I could change. I think I had a yeah. Debian box I installed. And it was like Etsy something something system something something yeah. wireless devices something something. And it turned out the GUI had created the config there. And that's where it was set. Yeah. And then trying to SSH in and figure that out really sort of sucked. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, my only saving grace there was that uh, Red Hat 7 support or CentOS 7 supports both the old, like, you know, Red Hat 9 way that I learned in school and the mm. new way with, like, Network Manager or whatever. And so I've just forced everything to use the old way because it's the only one I know. Uh, sure. But it kind of comes back to your thing is it can be confusing if you have conflicting settings in both of those or half your settings in each of those uh, because, mm -hmm. like, only the newer one can set up link aggregation correctly. Uh, and then it's like, well, how is this supposed to work? So, sure. yeah, I think... Uh, you know, it'd be great to see more of that, that user-facing consistency as well. Um, you know, that's what I really like about ZFS is it has all that except for the ZFS rollback commands minus R switch doesn't mean what minus R means in every other command. Uh, and, you know, they, they acknowledge that that was a mistake, but it's, you know, 20 years, two years, 20 years too late to fix it now. Sure. Maybe not quite but still, that's a really minor yes. complaint. I mean, if you have this an entire command like ZFS and everything it does, yeah. and that's the one thing we're picking at, they did a pretty exactly. good job. <laughs> uh, mostly because what minus R should do doesn't actually exist in that context, uh, although it might in the future. And so, yeah, they should have saved it. But, yeah, um, you know, ZFS is definitely somebody should do a, a study on just how great that command line interface for that is. And mm -hmm. everything should be like that. <laughs> that should be the model yes. going forward. Yeah. yeah. No, I agree with that. Okay. So our next article we have here, the ultimate NetBSD mm -hmm. router. So walk us through this, Alan. I guess we don't we don't get too many NetBSD articles. I was glad to see we had a few exactly. for this week. Uh, so actually, this user spent the day setting up a new firewall and originally based it off our BSD Now tutorial. Um, They've had a couple of OpenBSD routers before, either using an old laptop or a bulky old power-sucking desktop that was over -spec or using an overspec machine like an Intel NUC, which is the little next unit of computing. Uh, I'd hold mine up right now, except for it's how Chris's face shows up on the show, so I don't want to pick it up. Um, so he used all those before, but he wanted something low power and small and useful. So he has a couple of these QB trucks, uh, which are the slightly bigger QB boards. Uh, and he'd used them in the past to do like art installations and so on using uh, Debian or pure data, but found that, you know, uh, they're not that great because the manufacturer requires blobs for graphics and audio and Debian doesn't allow those. And uh, so, you know, multimedia that doesn't do video and only does audio if you plug in a USB sound card is kind of not that useful. But mm -hmm. he gives the specs. They're uh, dual-core uh, ARM V7A20, which is uh, dual 1 gigahertz, 2 gigs of RAM, a micro SD card slot, a SATA slot, uh, USB, and uh, Ethernet. So he decided uh, to put the OS on the SD card. While SATA is great, he doesn't have a hard drive dangling out of the thing right now. Uh, so he said the only thing that was missing was a second NIC. So he grabbed uh, uh, an Apple USB to Ethernet dongle that he had laying around. Uh, which was, hmm. at the time, the cheapest thing you could find on eBay that had uh, drivers for OpenBSD and NetBSD. Uh, okay. So he decided to do NetBSD on it because it was a tiny little ARM board and NetBSD had the best support for this particular uh, board. Uh, so, he, you know, he's 
never actually used uh, NetBSD before. He's been running uh, FreeBSD for uh, Home NAS for about two years and used OpenBSD previously for routers uh, and a, you know, a handful of other things. Uh, but he also did quite a bit of stuff on uh, Linux back with like Ubuntu 11.10 and so on and then Debian. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, currently FreeBSD and OpenBSD both support the QB board too, which is the same chipset as the QB track, but neither have USB uh, support or support for the QB track's gigabit NIC, whereas NetBSD does. Uh, so he installed hmm. uh, NetBSD uh, 7.0.1 uh, and he uh, has the instructions of how he actually got it onto the QB track. Uh, mm-hmm. Booted that up, uh, set up the bootloader so it could boot it, and uh, set up the frame buffer so it actually display on his HDMI port. Uh, and he's got instructions here if you're uh, would rather use the serial console. Uh, but then he walks through actually setting up uh, NetBSD as the router. So uh, first thing he did was fix the date and time because uh, the QB truck, like the Raspberry Pi and so on, doesn't have a uh, battery to keep the clock going when it's unplugged uh, so it goes back to 1970 all the time so yeah, I configured mm, that to fix itself at startup but enabled uh, mm-hmm. PF and NTPD and so on enabled IP forwarding uh, set up his boot command stuff and uh, set up his package repositories uh, then he set up DCP on the internal gigabit interface and uh, set up his PF rules uh, and uh, configured the services. So he uh, walks through the setup of the setting up the IP addresses and interface and so on, ping to make sure everything works, uh, sets up PF unbound and the DHCP server, and uh, gets it all running. This looks eerily familiar. I just did this last yes. night. So, except not with NetBSD, I had a Raspberry Pi with FreeBSD. And I uh, installed, uh, grabbed the latest current grabbed a second USB Ethernet dongle. So that was for my WAN port, and then the, the onboard is for the LAN, and then I added a wireless access point via USB as well. But the, the only catch, the only thing I did a little different is we have it tied into OpenVPN, mm-hmm. so it actually logs us into the IX network when you connect to it from remote locations, which is kind of cool. Yeah. So, yeah, this this looks very similar. You almost did the exact same setup I did. Um, PF rules are a little different, yeah. but... For the most part, I mean, this is pretty much the same thing I did on that arm. That's yep. cool. Uh, he even uh, mentions uh, our tutorial in a couple of places and showing how he changed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of using a DNS script proxy, it just sets up Unbound directly instead, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and gets that all working and sets up the DHCP server. And then uh, I said, at the end, uh, this project was really fun. I started with basically no experience with NetBSD, and I finished with a really useful, low-powered, and robust appliance. It's a testament to the simplicity of the NetBSD system and the BSD design principles in general that such a novice as myself could figure this all out in under a day. Uh, the NetBSD project was easily the most uh, polished experience on these all-winner ARM boards. Uh, even better mm-hmm. than Debian, uh, he said. It's a mm-hmm. joy running the system. It uh, has the bits he loves from OpenBSD, like KSH and Tmux. Uh, there's an HP daemon in base, and uh, he has his PF for it. He says uh, there's. Uh, it's the mix of some of the pragmatism he sees in FreeBSD, like a willingness to accept blobs if it's really the only way to boot or get audio or video console, mm-hmm. uh, whereas on Debian and OpenBSD, that's not really allowed. Uh, but, yes, he found uh, NetBSD is quite useful as a router as well. 
Interesting. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. One of these days, I need to try something like that with a NetBSD install. I need to go find some esoteric piece of hardware that only NetBSD would run on and just give that a whirl. Well, I have that router I bought last year's BSD came. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I've got it almost working. I've never gone back to it to in, try to squeeze the base system down to the exact bits I need for the router. Uh, mm-hmm. Or now that we have the reboot support, I'll probably just do what I did with the uh, Onion Omega and have an, an entire base system on a USB stick so I can actually, you know, now that there's packages for MIPS as well, uh, it should be fairly easy to build a nice router out of it. Nice. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. It's just, you know, time, right? Yeah. One of these days when I'm retired, I'm going to do a lot of this stuff. Yes. <laughs> After the kids have all moved out, I'm retired, yeah. and, you know, we have actual evenings again and weekends. Yeah. That could be fun. So, Okay. Well, let's move on to the next mm-hmm. one here. So we have actually quite a lengthy article today from our friend Michael Dexter, yes. who's been a longtime friend of the show, who uh, asked the basic question, what if multi-booting and OS upgrades weren't horrible? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good question to ask. You know, so this, of course, this actually, no doubt, even if, if we go back to last week uh, when we had mm-hmm. um, what's that Linux website, uh, DistroWatch, had yes. their post about in-place upgrades of different OSs, and mm-hmm. basically found that every OS is terrible. <laughs> yes, uh, it's yeah. like, well, actually, uh, what if it wasn't? What if it wasn't? Well, no doubt. I mean, if you've been a listener to the show, you've heard Alan or myself talking about ZFS boot environments and how they can change your life. Well, today, Michael goes a little bit further into detail on that and how they can change your life, but also how BEs work and how they can be leveraged to do some neat, I guess, non-standard things mm-hmm. at the moment. But uh, like installing other versions of an operating system from the original running system. So let's just read a couple of the quotes here. He said, if you're reading this, you've probably used a personal computer with a BSD or a GNU Linux operating system. And at some point, of course, you attempted a multi-boot between multiple OSs on the same computer. This goal is typically attempted with complex disk partitioning. Yeah, been there. And a BSD or GNU Linux bootloader like Lilo or Grub, plus several hours of frustrating experimentation and perhaps data loss. Yeah, been there too. That sounds very familiar. He said, while exotic OS experimentation has driven my virtualization work since the late 90s, there are very pragmatic reasons for multi-booting the same OS on the same hardware, notable for updates and, of course, to fall back to known good versions. To its credit, FreeBSD has long had various strategies, including the NanoBSD embedded system framework with primary and secondary root partitions, plus the next boot utility for selecting the next kernel with various boot parameters. Get everything set correctly and you can multi-boot with impunity. He said that's a good start, and over time we've seen ZFS boot environments be used by PCBSD and FreeNAS to allow for system updates that allow one to fall back to a previous version should something go wrong. Mm -hmm. Hats off to those efforts, but they exist in essentially purpose-built appliance environments. I have long sensed that there's more fun to be had here, and a wonderful thing happened with FreeBSD 10.3 and 11 where Alan Jude added boot environment menu to the FreeBSD loader. So I guess that's kind of what prompted all this messing around he did. Mm-hmm. But it, from here, Michael takes us through the mechanical bits of actually creating a new ZFS data set, or I guess boot environment is what we'll call it in this case, and performing a fresh FreeBSD 10.3 installation into this new boot environment. I think he's running a current on his host in this case. Yeah, so this is different. So, uh, the, the normal use of boot environments is just you, you keep your old system around when you upgrade yeah. so you can fall back to it. In this case, he's yes. installing a completely different version of FreeBSD in an empty boot environment. Yeah, he's going backwards in yeah. time in this case, which is really cool. And that's something I've been wanting to do with our installer for a mm-hmm. while. So when you boot up the ISO, it doesn't read this partition. It just creates a new boot environment on your existing Z pool. Mm-hmm. 
and splats the binaries in there, and then you don't lose your home directory. Everything's good, right? Yep. You can just boot up in the new environment, and you're good to go. So something I want to add, too. But uh, the twist he throws on it at the end here, though, is where he sets up the new boot environment to then act as a root NFS server for booting in Beehive, which this is really interesting because it gives you a way to now test booting into your new environment via VM before you ever trigger a reboot on the host mm-hmm. and potentially take down your working system. But uh, de- you know, it's definitely complex. He's got a lot of uh, pictures and shows what commands he's running and a lot of output of ZFS. I'm, you might be looking at it now, Alan, but it's uh, definitely uh, you know you want to dig into this. Take make sure you have a little bit of time set aside if you want to kind of walk through his process here. But ultimately, it's not too painful. It boils down to create a new data set extract the disk files into it or whatever the the binaries are you want to boot on the new system and then uh, set some ZFS flags and then the last bits are of course the root NFS uh, port he downloaded and set that up to act as a NFS boot server but uh, anyway very very cool and hopefully we see more people doing need experimentation like this in the future because I think that's going to eventually evolve into new methods of doing like system installation like I said this is what I talked to Michael a year ago and that's where we had the idea like oh what well, would be cool if we could just install into a boot environment well, you can, and avoid disk partitioning entirely with this you'll be able to do both different things uh, you could also do this with a jail uh, although True. it's less virtualized but in the end you just want to make sure that all your startup scripts are going to come up and that it's not going to fail at the single user mode you just can't test the kernel in that right. case which, yes. which is, is pretty critical of, yeah. <laughs> but you have to remember that using Beehive you're not testing the bootloader either you're using user boot true uh, so that you, is true the problem is you, and you're using the NFS boot environment right. or the NFS boot right. so that's slightly different yes uh, but it's close enough to let you at least make sure that the kernel and world that you're going to have are going to cooperate and that mm-hmm. you know you're not just going to get you test a log cam errors like that. constantly, or, or that it's not going to finish coming yeah. up. Yeah, uh, it was weird that he manually set up the NFS thing instead of using ZFS to do that. But yeah, I'm not sure what his reasoning for that was, yeah. and maybe Michael will have to explain. Well, that also, the way he did the echo, he clobbered his exports file instead of appending to it. But yes, I'm pretty sure what he actually wanted to do was ZFS set in that case. But uh-huh. uh, Part of it, I'm guessing, is probably because he shortened the path by temporary mounting, and so he probably had to do it that way, actually. So, anyway. Uh, 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 but, yes, it shows how to do it all with uh, Beehive, and uh, it's quite useful. Um, yeah, definitely. I'll have to also find the link for next week. Um, Will Andrews has a script for doing install world into a new boot environment. So mm-hmm. if you're building from source and want to install into a new boot environment, how to do that. Although uh, I think Dexter's way would work as well. Just instead of untarring into it, you would just do your make uh, install world with Dexter equals that uh, path where he extracted the tars to. And it would be the same as well. Nice. Okay. Yeah, well, nice to see all people all, a good article. Uh, actually using the stuff that we built. Yes. All right. It's neat when you actually see your screenshots of something you wrote. Yeah. Like, oh, that's my boot environment mm-hmm. menu. They're using it. How cool is yeah. that? Okay, well, we're going to go to our uh, promised BSD Robots interview in here in just a moment. So you'll have to stick around for that. But really quick before we do, of course, first sponsor this week, we're going to start with IX Systems. Mm-hmm. Website for that, ixsystems.com slash BSD now. You should know that by now if you've been watching the show. Come on. You should have that bookmarked. That's your home. Well, maybe not your homepage. But 
it should be right up on the list. Like you start typing IX and it comes right up. So anyway, you want to go there if you haven't or if maybe you've just poked around. You need to start talking to these guys. See what they can build for you for your next system or systems depending on what kind of uh, setup you're particularly going for. Of course, whatever they build you is going to be uh, you know, IX quality and it's going to be awesome based on the latest and greatest Intel processors. They can get you all kinds of make and models. So even if you need something brand, brand cutting new or something a little harder to find – IX could probably dig that up for you. So definitely get in touch with them. Let their sales engineers uh, spec that out for you and figure out what you need to accomplish the particular workflow you're going for. Yeah, I think the, the big takeaway here is that you should email IX and tell them what you want to do with the server mm-hmm. uh, because they have all kinds of crazy tweaks they can do. And the difference over somewhere else where you have to tell them what you want uh, the machine to look like with I actually tell you what you want it to do and they actually have yes. useful advice about well you know there's these four different types of SSDs which kind is going to be the best for what you want to mm-hmm. do you know because uh, you know oftentimes depending on the workload the less expensive one is fine uh, or you know for one particular workload you know you need uh, if you're just setting up a ZFS um, shepherd and log device it doesn't need to be very big so don't go spending a bunch sure. of money on like an 800 gig SSD for that because you're never going to use more than 16 gigs of it. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Plus, they'll even get into the nitty gritty like, hey, if you're going to set up your RAID Z this way, this is how you want to do it so it's best safe for hosting VMs. Yep. Or no, maybe you're hosting a gajillion NFS files. Yep. So maybe this is the way you want to set it up. I mean, that's yeah, it's like uh, other vendors going to do if that. If you're doing small blocks and you need a lot of IOPS, you want to do it this way. But if you just need as much storage as possible out of this number of hard drives, then you want to go this way. But, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's not going to be quite as fast, but it's more resilient and uh, you get more usable space out of the same number of drives. Uh, right. And they, they, yeah, they know all the trade-offs and the ins and outs. And, yes, there's a reason they're, they're not called sales engineers just, you know, to try to make it sound It's not a fancy title at IX. Yeah, it's not no, a fancy no, title. It actually not. means they know how to build servers. You know, like Burger King or Grill Cook yeah. or whatever. You know, it's not like that kind of title, right? <laughs> it's not to make them sound fancy. It's because they actually know what they're doing. They're yes. engineers yes. first and salespeople second, not the other way around. That's right. That's right. So, of course, get in touch with them because they can build everything from those tiny little Freenas minis that sit happily under your desk and are quiet and you never have to pay attention to because it's just doing its thing. All the way up to, your, of course, your powerhouse TrueNazes, the TrueNazes with all yes. flash, like the Z50. And, of course, they build servers. That's where they started. So they'll build all the wild stuff where we've seen with how many terabytes of memory and yep. just all RAM expanders. Well, I, you know, <laughs> I've bought machines from them so down to, like, a router with a 4-gig uh, USB stick mounted on the motherboard and no hard drives. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, one uh, U short depth, just tiny thing to, to sure. go to my house. Uh, and and then last week they were talking about, oh, yeah, you can buy the TrueNAS Z35 and it can hold four petabytes of data uh, and has oh, half a terabyte of RAM. <laughs> it's like yeah. you can go from four gigabytes to four petabytes, whatever you need in yes. there. Yeah, yeah. And they'll make it look yes. awesome, too. You should look. they got some really nice chassis, too. I'm yes. really pleased with how the TrueNAS boxes look, by the way, if you've not yeah, seen Yeah, and, and just... The fact that they will spend just as much time with you, whether you want to buy one tiny machine for home or 300 mm-hmm. giant ones uh, for deployment to a data center, you know, you get the same level of care and attention, you know. That's right. That's right. So, again, folks, come on, ixsystems.com slash BSD now. Of course, let them know you heard about it here because yep. they love to talk to our listeners. So, uh, 
they will get a kick out of that, and uh, you will get taken care of. And if you missed it, uh, they have some coverage of uh, when they were at BSD Camp. Oh some yeah, extra that's pictures right. That's and right. so on. So if you've, uh, I think I took those. some of those pictures actually. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so, yeah, a yeah, couple of them you're not in the picture, so I'm pretty sure it's because you took the picture. I'm never in the picture. It seems like all these people go, and I'm the one actually taking pictures. <laughs> but whatever, I don't. Yep. I guess I'm not photogenic or something. Who knows? Yes, you are. Don't worry. <laughs> there we go. Anyway, let us know. I'm taking your picture right story. now. There you go. There you go. Hey, if you guys have an IX story, though, we like to hear yes, those things, too. too. So send them in to us because we like to hear about any crazy stuff they've built for you. Okay. Well, today we're at a BSD can again, and we're joined by Carla and Vinicius, who are here to talk to us about uh, a robot they did, which I don't think we've ever talked about robots before on the show, which is quite exciting. So... Um, first of all, thank you guys for taking some time to come up and do this. Anytime, really anytime. appreciate it. We, we are happy to be here and dance with you today. This is great. This is great. So, um, of course, we'll show you guys some pictures of the robot later. We don't have it sitting here, but don't worry. You'll see it on the show, so don't panic. It's coming. But uh, first of all, the first question we always ask people is, what got you into BSD? How did you hear about it, or how did you find it and decide to use it? I was uh, just finishing the, the grad school. Mm-hmm. I mean, the... The first, uh, the college? High school. Yeah, high school. Oh, okay. okay. And I was in the IRC and stuff like that, just talking to people, and I heard about PBSD, OpenBSD. Sure. Stuff. It was in 2003. Mm-hmm. And I just tried it. It was uh, FreeBSD 5.0. Okay. I'm not wrong. It's been a little while. Sure. And I just love it. Mm-hmm. And tried to do some patches and help. Mm-hmm. Too. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially these days with the robots. Sure. Yeah, here I am. Awesome. I know, all the way in Ottawa. <laughs> you guys are from Brazil, by the way. I yes. Yes. So, um, well, that's great. Yeah. Uh, I met Fabius last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because of him, it's all his fault. Okay. Because of the robot. So. And then I was just using for BSC on the robot, and then I was like, so why should I use, I should use on my computer? And also I get to know more of the system and get to know what I'm working with. So I installed FreeBSD uh, free on my computer three days ago, and I don't have Windows anymore. That's awesome. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, yeah, it helps if you don't show up at the BSC conference. Let me show you the presentation. Sometimes I have a problem with Windows, and then yeah, yeah. people look at me, you know, oh my God, you shouldn't be here. Yeah, that's great. Well, the funny one was last year somebody was presenting about Beehive, the previous uh, VMware type thing, but it was running Windows inside of it, uh, and it broke and it wouldn't work, and nobody knew how to use Windows. Right? There's <laughs> like one guy in the audience who finally admitted he knew what to fix. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's been uh, first of all great to have you guys here. But tell us about. Uh, you gave a presentation here at BSC yes. and talking about this robot project. So tell us about what inspired it or what started it. And, uh... I was uh, with Ed Kama at the lab. Mm-hmm. We worked together in the university about one year ago. And I just saw she writing the paper for the final thesis, the graduation. Mm-hmm. And I just told her to try previously. Thought it was a joke, right? <laughs> I didn't take him seriously, you know, yeah. because I had no idea about you know, yeah. uh, Linux, even Linux, I didn't have any clue what it was. So imagine you have to make the robot, and then a person says, "Hey, let's like a dev person, oh, hey, let's do this um, with FreeBSD." I was like, 
No, it's it, for me it was impossible. But then, uh, and then when we realized that we needed, to, I I, re I needed to create something that was innovative and was uh, different from everything. And then I said, you know what? No, like let's do this. You know, uh, I will learn um, far, uh, through far, the, the far away from your comfort zone. To totally mm. out of my comfort zone, but then yeah, it, it works. So right. <laughs> that, that, that matters. <laughs> Um, so yes, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the robot and, and what it does? Okay, so the, the should I? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the robot is an exapod robot, and it's um, so six legs. Mm -hmm. And basically, what the robot does, he walks. Well, that's the main idea. Sure. But then before it walks, we had to do a bunch of things. We had to communicate these two boards, control um, the twelve motors, several motors, and so we can control the robot uh, to Wi-Fi. Which is a good thing because we also wanted to connect the robot to IoT since it's not growing, you know. Sure. We have IPv6 yes. and all the features. So, we are, uh, for now, we are doing like a base, uh, a solid base, and then we can build uh, up, you know, to the next sure. generations of the robot. At the beginning, we got problems trying some uh, wireless interfaces with the uh, bigger one because mm -hmm. some work, some don't. Sure. And I needed to use Crochet to build custom gamers, some work, some don't. <laughs> and as soon as I got a stable configuration for us to, to run the, the Wi-Fi correctly, to set up the, the bigger one, the, the FreeBSD app, just keep that config, keep that uh, Wi-Fi interfaces, so we can just write the model, sure. put it uh, like a tutorial, mm -hmm. and so you can do your own robot. Like, well, so building your own, I guess you guys uh, were talking beforehand about it's a custom kit that you guys have bought. Is that something easily people can get a hold of and, and kind of duplicate yeah. what you've done? So, it's not a kit, we kind of created our oh, own. Okay. Yeah, so I heard about the frame, I was searching online. Mm -hmm. So, because I was still deciding with my professors in the lab if we would buy or if we would um, make our own frame. But then we said, okay, so let's not focus on this, let's uh, focus on the system itself because mm -hmm. I think uh, we can get more uh, from that. So, we bought the frame and then we had to decide which, which board would be the, the brain of the robot. Then we decided for we yeah we decided uh, to use uh, Bigobon Black since we have right. a lot in the lab and then we have a bunch of documentation about it you know all the projects and then uh, when I saw that I had to control twelve servo motors then I, uh, I looked for a driver that would mm -hmm. make this operation easier for us so it's just like via serial so sure. it, it's easy to send a protocol so that was very easy for us because we could put other actions at the same time and and then I put the, the servos and then I, I built the robot so we created our own kit. That's nice. And there is a dedicated uh, PWM, a board for doing the PWM because mm -hmm. with the legal ball we are using uh, there are only four channels available for PWM in you, we couldn't get some mass, yeah, we couldn't get some troubles trying to demultiplex this. Yeah, trying to run 
four light or sixteen motors on four channels. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'll proceed with another example. This uh, robot uh, because it's a bio-inspired robot. So when I say bio, it's because it's um, it has some features from insects, not a spider. Spider mm -hmm. is just eight, eight legs, and sure. our has just six legs. Uh, and then we decided since we wanted to be low power, um, compact, uh, we decided to use only two servo motors uh, per leg. So robot can move in two dimensional, you know, um, forward, back, left, and right. It can go up and down, but then since it was our choice, you know, yeah. so yeah, it made our life easier because we have to think about battery, uh, sure. like power consumption. It's like so many things because it's embedded systems, you know, mm -hmm. we have to control other things. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like a small change we had to do. Uh, we had to adapt the, the robot from three uh, motors per line for uh, to two. So that's a small change we had to do. But it makes a big difference in the end, and you know. It it does. It does. So I'm, I'm just talking about frame. You know, if you buy the frame, you can totally use uh, the whole kit. But we sure. decided just to 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 use mm -hmm. part of the kit. So yeah, a heavier battery makes. It takes more power to lug around and then yeah. And we need two batteries because we have to power the motors separated from the boards because when you move the servo motor you have a peak of current yeah. and then we didn't want to uh, damage our boards. Yeah, right. And, and that way the control board can tell you when it's out of batteries for the lights. Too. That's right. Like, I'm going to shut down gracefully now. Did you guys have to write all the software by hand to do the controlling of the legs and whatnot? And, and what language did you use as Python. well? Did you use a Python. Okay. And this guy also introduced me to Python because okay. by that point, uh, I only knew C, but then C is very complicated. We'll have, you have to pay attention to so many things, mm -hmm. and Python was so so easy. You know? sure. So it's mostly Python, but then we use a little bit of C uh, in the client server communication. Sure. Yeah, it's a simple thing. Client server scenario sockets, you just send a comment or a mm -hmm. char or something like this. And on the server, running at the bigger one, it just runs the comment, you put it right, left, and things like sure. Pretty basic. But it was perfect for us because at the beginning of this project, we were thinking about uh, replacing the Lego robots mm -hmm. that people use to. Not the mindstorm. Yeah. 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 It was a bit boring. Mm -hmm. Just drag and drop and blah blah blah. And we choose Python because it's very easy. Accessible but yeah. powerful. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And we could use the robot to introduce robotics and uh, graduation in engineering courses or anything like sure. that. It would be more exciting. It would be more fun. So have you built any applications on top of it? Like does the robot have a camera or something? Next step, uh, yeah, you can anticipate it. Next year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, because um, basically we wanted to do this for inspection. You know, you put in an environment or some kind of um, room, and then you can do the inspection. So we control the robot, and then we needed the visual feedback, and we are working on this. You know, we had the idea, yeah. but then uh, we kind of stopped, and then now we're gonna move forward to get a, a visual feedback, and then uh, we are already using the USB mm -hmm. from. Uh, big up on black, so sure. we need to use a cape, and you know, it's gonna be a little bit more of trouble. We don't know if the driver is working for big up on black, but that's our next step. 
this and feedback from batteries, you know, because sure. I think it's the main thing for us now. And since we created a screen for a supervisory system, we're going to be able to see, oh, batteries are cool, we can continue mm -hmm. it so we don't kill our batteries. Well, especially if it's for inspections in areas where a human can't get to, mm -hmm. you need to leave enough battery for the robot to come back. Yeah. Exactly. We also have a great support uh, in Brazil, has a guy, uh, Luis, mm -hmm. he's a FreeBSD developer. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, he's uh, 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 Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. he's a network developer. Oh, okay. A lot mm -hmm. with our questions with, uh, related to GPIO and Bigelow mm -hmm. and the uh, ABC uh, converter. Sure, sure. Mm -hmm. And maybe for the next year, Maybe we'll record the episode with, with, with the robot actually moving around. So we know you guys use FreeBSD Current to build this, yeah. but yes. how, how suitable was the operating system to do what you wanted to do here? Did you end up having to do a lot of work to get it going, or was it just kind of ready to actually ready to it was, uh, I got a snapshot from the FTP server, mm -hmm. just pulled it. Worked and me perfect. Hmm. But some packages were by that date there wasn't an official repository for our packages, mm -hmm. and we needed to create not, uh, our private uh, repository to share code reader. Lot. And when I got more experience with code I also tried to contribute with uh, compilations for MIPS, 32 MIPS, 64. I will try Army 64 as soon as I get in Brazil and get things going and helping the project and helping other people trying to compile or develop products or researches. It will be a pleasure. And it's quite fun. It's quite fun. Like uh, we talked a bit before about the paths. Mm -hmm. I saw that uh, paths is compiled for ARM and I got Brazil and hey, it works. You can put it on. Uh, Base, you can put it on ports. We also got a great support from uh, a lot of guys on the IRC, uh, Gonzo, especially, uh, if I'm not wrong. Uh, he helped us to enable some pins with the DTS and FDT stuff. Mm -hmm. It's also committed to base system. And as soon as we get more stuff working, we're happy to. Yeah, share. to share. Yeah, to contribute. Yeah, but Black is an especially good platform for this because it's also what uh, some other people in the FreeBSD project use to teach operating mm -hmm. systems to students and so on. Yeah. yeah, and so the more people using that one platform means the support is that much more mature. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, there are people even in our same lab asking why are we using BeagleBone? It's such a huge thing. We don't need that to. Just with a robot, a small robot to walk. But, dude, we have an operating system there, we have a yeah. IPv6 stack. You don't have to write your own operating system and kind of have a lot shorter development time. Yeah, for the IoT things, and it's huge what we can do. It's mm -hmm. grateful, it's fun, and it's not just like using a big microcontroller. Yeah, for example, we can have used Arduino. 
we sure. could have easily used that, but then I, uh, I'm i not sure how much knowledge I would get just using Arduino. Now I have a computer, I control my robot with a computer, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. It could be like a less use of a big one part, but then I chose that and it's it's on me, you know? I take this, but then when we need in the future, we already have the features in the board, so we don't have to restart the project because, oh, yeah. now we need to do this. So, unfortunately, uh, we have to restart. So I think it was a perfect choice for us. Yeah, I think, you know, an Arduino wouldn't be able to support a camera in the future with all the yeah. sensors. Or, and, you know, it's like, how do you get Wi-Fi with IPv6 on an Arduino? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, general, using a general-purpose platform just saves that much more time. easier to swap out the hardware in the future day, yeah, too, right? The upgrade path is a lot more straightforward. Hearing out of that, um, there's a MIPS board that I've been playing with that has a 16-channel PWM controller uh, and uh, would be very similar to the Beagle One Black. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's quite as powerful, so maybe the Beagle One Black is still the right choice, but depending on what your needs are, it might be something you know, okay. And, yeah, and yeah. you would have the same FreeBSD on top of it, so your your Python script wouldn't change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but it's good to because now we use two boards, mm -hmm. you know. So if we can make it one, so it's even more competitive the mm -hmm. robot, you know. And some problems that we we have uh, with IO, mm -hmm. maybe we could uh, avoid all this. Yeah, yeah. We wouldn't have this because we already have the sixteen channels. Mm -hmm. You know, like now it's uh, it's good for us because we only use twelve motors, but then in the future. We we sure. we need. Yeah, if you want to be able to time over things, yeah. then exactly, yeah. And then, but but it's a, it's a for this uh, generation would be a good idea to use. <laughs> yeah. So I have to ask, what are you using PEFs for on a robot? Uh, I I try to compile the PEFs, uh -huh. uh, not for the robot. Oh, okay. I privately <laughs> use it at home and stuff mm -hmm. like this because I also had some uh, contact. I also had some uh, Raspberry Pis, mm -hmm. and it was. The same thing, and I just use it for private things. Okay, I was just curious. We do some crazy encryption on there, recording everything. We well, yeah. have a robot sneaking up on something on oh, the camera. Yeah, that's a good idea. That, we right? can totally use that, you know, to record. That's about. right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Just oh my God! You guys gave the best ideas. Brazilian spy robot. Yes, that's really cool. Yes, that's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> So is there anything that uh, the FreeBSD project can do to make it easier to build things like this? Like more documentation on getting started with embedded platforms? Or? Exactly. Uh, teaching BSD, uh, I was in this talk on Dev Summit. It was great, the idea. They want to uh, improve the use of uh, FreeBSD. And then I'm a beginner, you know. I kind of had difficulty because it, I, I had him, so it was easier. But then when you start on your own, you don't have like a tutorial. To, I know it's very... Yeah, and it's very simple, but then if you want to get more people, and I didn't have uh, uh, like the tutorial to follow, but then when you have this step, you have to follow and then explain, it gets easier, yeah. and then like for embedded yeah. systems. I forwarded the wiki page for the FreeBSD mm -hmm. product to Anikarla, and she just read everything, also the handbook, I also gave the FreeBSD, absolute FreeBSD, yeah, the, book. the book as a gift, and she's just Everything mm -hmm. nice. Right. Sometimes it, you know, you the information out there, you go find it. But if you could, if you have someone, you just ask, you get an yeah. answer yeah. in seconds, yeah. and it gets you unstuck, and you get to keep moving. And, and but, uh, uh, you're, you're right. Uh, the documentation for embedded is still lacking some points. Mm -hmm. We talked to GNN, the talk. Mm -hmm. We also talked to people in the foundation, 
we can work on it. I sure. It would be would be a pleasure to help also to write. Yeah, we found like it's day one of feedback, how it was for us to work yeah. on the since we are just beginners, you know. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then we could Totally yeah, there, there are tutorials here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is yeah. Like not the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, for it almost seems like a whole handbook section. Like yeah, bootstrap. Mm -hmm. and, you know, but you see, you know, uh, from our side, it's very helpful to have the experience from a, someone who's just starting out to know where are the problem, like where are the parts where they get stuck, so that we can make sure we have instructions for that. And I've been talking with some other people from FreeBSD about making uh, an appliance SDK. Uh, more of the bits and pieces to actually build an appliance out of FreeBSD. But I think maybe we could have something that's similar for building embedded type things, mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, I want to build a, a robot, or I want to build a, a temperature sensor, or I want to build a weather station, or, or all these oh, different things. Th this is perfect. This is mm -hmm. perfect yeah. because uh, when you learn one thing and then to move to other things, it's easy. You already have the board, you just put the, the, the sensors and then make slide easier, and then you can improve the use of FreeBSD mm -hmm. because the system doesn't crash. This yes. is yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it has all the, the stuff you need, like access to a giant repository packages as we get more and more RMD6 official packages and uh, you know, making sure that it works with the Wi-Fi that comes with the Omega or whatever device you're using and so on. We almost should have you talk to Jim Brown. He just did this whole ARM sprinkler controller system where it has actuators and it runs his sprinkler system around the house and yeah. stuff, you know? I actually, I'm, I don't know if it's Jim Brown, but I talked to a guy that did the same thing. Mm -hmm. Might be this. It might be Jim. It might be Jim. Yeah. Or the idea is just spreading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More, more people. There are more people. We almost need like a hobby DSC site or something where yeah. it's like more details on like how to do these. Yeah, things. he showed some pictures and yeah. I saw it was beautiful. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So um, I guess just kind of wrapping up here. One thing I wanted to ask about was you guys had a conference in Brazil, a BSD conference uh, in the past. Are you going to do it again in the yeah. future? We are planning to do it uh, next year. Okay. And we need to rush. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it takes a lot of time. Yeah. yeah. It takes a lot of responsibility, time, and yeah. Mm -hmm. but Thank you for doing this. Yes. <laughs> we need more of those all around the world. That's great. Well, cool. Anything else you wanted to ask? Or? Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you guys very much. Okay, I hope you guys enjoyed robots. That's always fun, and uh, we don't get to do enough of that. Hopefully, this inspires other people to go out there and say, you know, we should build a robot, and we should make it based on FreeBSD or have FreeBSD driving the brains of it anyway. I think that's really, really cool, and there's a lot of potential, uh, potentially neat things people could do, be doing with that as evidenced by our interview and videos. So uh, thank you, of course, uh, folks, for sitting down with us at that at uh, BSD Can. We really appreciate you uh, spending the time to show us what cool stuff you guys are doing down in Brazil. Okay, so let's head into the news roundup. But before we do, of course, sponsor this week, DigitalOcean. So it's going to be DigitalOcean.com, and there's no slash or anything at the end there. Don't worry about that. Just DigitalOcean.com. But where you can uh, let them know you heard about it is when you sign up and create your new account there, use the coupon code FREEBSDNOW. Okay, that's going to give you your ten dollar credit, which is you know good for basically running two months of a VM there. And their low end VM is not really a slouch by any means. Yeah. We're talking a terabyte of traffic a month, and then uh, is of course backed by SSDs. 
They support installing FreeBSD on it natively, so you can just click, click, and boom, you have a FreeBSD droplet ready to go and log in. I yes. I use one here. That's how I do backup mail, for example. Yeah, I have one backup. for backup mail, one for a status page, one for a TeamSpeak server. Do you have – so you roll multiple VMs for that? Uh, well, I have – the, the status server is in a different city than the other ones. Okay. And is, okay. is on a company account, whereas uh, the – Mail server is personal, and then the yeah. So mine's all just one, yes. but I set up jails yes. on it because you know that's just my way of mm-hmm. doing things. But works perfectly well, and I'm yep. only using the ten dollar a month uh, yep. droplet, I believe, and it works great yeah. for what I needed to do. So, and like I said, setup. I think it was one of those things. I actually had a little bit of free time on a Saturday. I sat down, and within thirty minutes, I had a backup mail server. Okay. I had my jail set up. I had a mumble server going. Well, um, their control panel is amazing. You just log in. You yeah. click, is yeah. like click. Uh, okay, I want a new droplet. Uh, make it FreeBSD. Put it in Toronto. Mm-hmm. You know, I want this size, zip, zip, click, uh, enter the host name, boom, it's done. It's like, oh, I, I want IPv6 too. Awesome. Uh-huh. The only catch I had back in the day was I didn't know what user to SSH in is. Ah, yes. Like, I had to look in the docs for that. It was FreeBSD yes. was the username. And you have to right? put your SSH key in. Yeah. Uh, no, I got the key yes. in. And I was like, okay, I put a key in. And I'm sitting here scratching my head like, I didn't create a user. Right. Like, what username did it give yeah. me? So I'm trying root. And, of course, that didn't work. And yeah. I'm like, oh, uh, I think FreeBSD. on all the Linuxes, it is yeah. root. But because FreeBSD disables root by default, they didn't change that. They kept it stock. Yes. And use the FreeBSD user, which is what so. uh, FreeBSD release engineering does for like the Raspberry Pi and so on. Sure. And so they just kind of followed suit there, except for no, no password and SSH. Yeah. Yeah. But, no, no, I yeah. figured it out. It was fine. It was really early, like when they had just introduced yes. FreeBSD as a thing, too. So uh, I'm sure at this point that's all perfectly yeah, I think well it does laid come out. out in, in big letters somewhere now. Yeah, yeah. It's really nice, though. Honestly, I spent. More time just setting up easy jail yep. and setting up the actual contents of the jails than I did messing around with the digital ocean interface because yep. it was just click, click, boom, FreeBSD is running in New York. Yep. Okay, uh, I'm good. But with the <laughs> control you. panel, you one click to do pretty much anything. One click resize the That's server. Right. One click DNS management. You actually get reverse DNS management as well, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. You can snapshot yeah. your VM and clone it and back it up and so on. Uh, they have team accounts now, floating IP addresses, so you can actually have a static IP that you can move between different droplets for upgrades and stuff. You know, these mm-hmm. are the type of things you need if you want to do something serious in production. There, uh, you know, they have some one-click installs. They also have global transfer. You can move a droplet between cities. So, for example, when I first started, they didn't have Toronto as an option. So, I two sure. of my VMs are in New York, and it's like, well, I would like to pick that one up and move it to Toronto. You can do that. Uh, and if they ever open an Atlanta data center, I will exactly. probably do that as well because that's quite a bit yep. closer to me. Uh, and it's all backed by SSDs, and that's why when you click, give me a new droplet, you get it in under 55 seconds. Yeah, it's thinking fast. And, of course, FreeBSD is not the only op- option there. Obviously, yep. they offer Linux, right? But, of course, the other BSDs yes. can be done as well. So if you have a little bit of patience, a little know-how, you can load it up and install OpenBSD, install Dragonfly or Net or whatever. Yeah. So it really is because quite cool. They they offer all this yep. at such they a They give you the price. console access. So you can also redo the install of FreeBSD slightly differently if you want. Uh, and you can yeah. do it with uh, Gelly encrypted disks where you have to type in a password when the VM boots. Uh, because you know it's the cloud, and you never know what's happening with the disk underneath. Um, so you sure. can go to their uh, console thing and get basically BIOS level access to the machine to type in that password before the OS starts. So you know, normally it's like, well, I need to SSH into the machine before I can do anything, and it would have to be booted for that, right? Uh, but yeah, you can even mm-hmm. configure it with uh, Gelly encrypted disks where you have to log, uh, 
go into the control panel and, and log in that way uh, from the console. So with that console access, you can do anything. Yeah, it's it's pretty darn complete. So check it out today, folks. I'm sure you won't be disappointed. And of course, if you do talk to anyone over there, tell them you heard about it here on BSD Now. We would uh, appreciate that. Okay, so Alan, the first up, we have uh, some Dragonfly yes. information, and I'm glad you wrote down what PFS meant because I at first I was like, I didn't yes. know what the acronym stood for in the context of Hammer, yes. right? But uh, yes. tell us about so, this. So uh, in a thread over on uh, users at Dragonfly BSD uh, mailing list, uh, there was some questions about what the at at symbol means in the name uh, in a PFS, which is a pseudo file system, which is basically what they call data sets in uh, HammerFS. So in HammerFS, okay. you create your root file system, and inside of it, you can create these pseudo FSs, which are like when you create additional file systems or ZVols or whatever in ZFS. Um, but they get named kind of weirdly. Like if you if you create a new uh, one and say call it test one, instead of being called you know slash hammer slash test one or whatever you named your root pool, uh, it gets named uh, at command line time, uh, but that name is just a symbolic link to the actual internal name, which is uh, the for the first one by default would be at at negative one colon zero 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 one. Yeah, a little confusing. For <laughs> I know I, I yes. was kind of glazed over as I was reading. Yeah, so the this. at at just means that it's a pseudo file system or a snapshot, uh, and then the okay. negative one. Before the colon uh, means it's the master, whereas lower numbers can mean it's yep. uh, on a slave or whatever. Uh, and then the mm -hmm. colon separator, and then just this five-digit number for the PFS. So you have uh, number zero is the root file system you already had, so you never actually see that one. But then you have, you know, create sure. file system one, two, three, four, or whatever. Um, and that's how they work. Um, in particular, it's uh, Hammer has one large B tree for uh, the entire file system. Uh, and then each uh, PFS exists within that as a, a branch of that B tree. Uh, and the PFSs are separated by localization parameters, which is uh, one of the way B trees are, are, keys are looked up in the B tree. So they have an example just down here a little bit. And you can see you have the root inode of the hammer FS, which contains the root directory. And then off of that are these branches for the pseudo file systems where they have all their sub things. Okay. And then, um, Snapshots are at at 0x, uh, the snapshot number, uh, and you can see that allows you to filter and basically jump to a specific place in the B tree uh, and find that snapshot quickly. Hmm. Uh, so it's organized quite a bit differently than ZFS, and that's why uh, when you're trying to relate it to the ZFS concepts, it gets very confusing uh, because it's done quite a bit differently. Mm -hmm. Again, one of these things I need to play with at some point. I would like to yeah. play with Hammer and Hammer 2 and just see how this stuff yes, works. Yes, because I, I have a feeling Hammer 2 is a bit more refined on some of this stuff. Uh, and, mm -hmm. you know, if I had the time, I would just sit there and read through. Uh, there's a bunch of design documents for Hammer 2 that just explain how it's intended to be put together and explain some of the bits that aren't even built yet, uh, which, you know. Sure. Those are kind of required to understand why things are done a certain way. It's because, well, it's going to be hooked up to this when that's done. I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. One user on the mailing list, though, pointed out that having the colon in the path can confuse some applications. Uh, in particular, if you have the case of the path environment variable, which is a list of paths yeah. separated by colons, and normally what you do when you, uh, say, want to add the current directory to that or 
um, you know, current directory slash bin is you take mm -hmm. the value of the current directory and then tack it on the end of that path environment variable or on the yeah, front to make it uh, the local things override every global things. Um, mm -hmm. But if it contains a colon, then the path won't work correctly. Uh, so maybe they should look at uh, using a different character instead of the colon as the separator there. Like maybe another yeah. at, or even sign? just another at symbol, because they're already <laughs> using that one a bunch, right? Yeah. Three well, it'd be like at, at, <laughs> negative one, at, the next at. thing. Uh, yeah, well. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, you're killing me, man. Uh, <laughs> I can never keep that straight. Compared to ZFS, it's very confusing with just having, you know, uh, the pseudofile systems are just pool name slash whatever you named it, uh, or any can mm -hmm. be hierarchical. Um, they don't actually talk about if you can do that on uh, HammerFS. So what they need is just an alias system now. Like they can use that yeah. internally, right? But then they just need some way of saying set alias yeah, blah. So, and then that way you can put the alias in your path and the system will internally Yeah, so they actually whatever, show right? how that doesn't sim quite work. So they create the sim link, but you can delete the sim link and then nothing mm -hmm. happens. And then you can recreate it by pointing at that internal number again. But it definitely seems like sure. uh, that's not... You'd want to store the metadata of what the name actually was, and when you called read link or whatever on that inode, you would instead of getting at at negative one colon zero 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 one, you would get the name that it was given. Uh, the other confusing sure. thing is they show uh, if you use just the name in a subdirectory, like they have an example here where you're in uh, slash a slash b slash c d e f g. Uh, if you try test one, mm -hmm. then it's no such file. But if you do a b c d e f g slash at at negative one colon blah blah blah. It works and finds the stuff inside, uh, and uh, okay. you know that can be very confusing. Uh, and they sh then they show uh, how the installer, the the Dragonfly installer, used to create separate uh, pseudo file systems for you know home temp user object uh, var var temp etc. Uh, but then they linked mm -hmm. to a mailing list post recently where they made it stop doing that because it was confusing people or somehow causing a problem. Ah, it seems there hmm, is okay. there's a pseudo file system called slash pfs that contains the short name mappings to the long name. That there you go. You. Okay, so they yeah, do it's it. just not yeah. where you would expect it to be. Yeah. That would make sense, though. Okay, yeah, it would make sense. I would never keep any yeah. of these straight, like trying to remember those. Right now, was it zero 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 three zero zero one? Well, you're just lucky. I, yeah. After you you're have just lucky, you don't do that with ZFS because uh, if yeah. you look at one of those, they use a uh, globally unique ID for each one. Um, mm -hmm. So they get pretty scary looking. Like, uh, yeah, no way of ever remembering those. Uh, <laughs> USR directory on uh, this random machine's ID number is one four eight three four five one six eight five three nine three four eight four seven five eight zero. Very yes. machine readable. Not so much for exactly. mere mortals. <laughs> All right. Okay, yes. well, let's move on here. So FreeBSD 11.0, we've been talking about this for a long time, and we've had uh, interviews yep. and things that are coming soon. But, hey, it's really happening. It's nearing RC1, yep. it looks like. So, of course, now uh, the schedule's been updated for that. So the first release candidate's actually slated for today, uh, although I think your, Alpha your 5 just landed. Your, or wait, excuse yes. me, July 29th, not today. Ah. Not see, I'm always thinking July, man. I'm I'm like ready so, to go. Uh, Actually, let's remove Thursday the notes, evening but. of next week. The stable branch yes. will be created, uh, and yes. uh, the beta one builds will begin. Uh, that means that the following day, 
which will be the Friday, yeah, um, they will f um, thaw FreeBSD, uh, the, the head of FreeBSD. The current. Uh, that'll, that'll become, become 12, 12 current, current, and people will be able to commit stuff again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yep. And we will see the release of uh, Beta 1. And then uh, each week after mm -hmm. that, we have Beta 2 and Beta 3 um, as necessary. And then um, on July 29th, or sooner if everything goes well, or later if it doesn't, sure. um, they will create the Redlang 11.0 branch, uh, and then that's mm -hmm. where RC1 gets built. Yep, RC1 yep. gets tagged there. Then they do an RC2. Well, first, they would, and, uh, uh, RC3 they would is optional. thaw the stable 11 branch, and people will be able to start yes. committing stuff for what will be 11.1, even though 11.0 is not out yet. But um, mm -hmm. that'll happen. And then, yeah, RC2 and possibly an RC1 uh, in the middle, or sorry, RC3 in the middle of August. Yep. And that means that the first release builds will start uh, near the end of August, and the release announcement could come as early as the start of September. Uh, so if I'm not mistaken, that's the schedule's moved up about a month. I think uh, originally the schedule was that uh, 11.0 would be released at the end of September rather than the beginning. Um. Yeah, I, do they move it up a month? I think well, I know they push it back. But, I thought it was like beginning uh, of August originally. I think the last version of the schedule I saw had the I, the release announcement being September twenty sixth or something. Oh, okay. Uh, well, yeah. Either way, it's coming soon. We're we're at minimum just two yep. three months uh, away. And so uh, the number of differences between what you will see in beta one and what comes out as release uh, should be fairly minimal. True. Just some bug fixes true. and so on. So of course. This means it's time to start playing yes. with these builds, folks. Make sure, of course, you're sending your feedback to the team. So this, of course, becomes the best auto release ever, which we would mm -hmm. all like it to be because there's just a lot of good new stuff in there. And uh, we'll, I don't know, we're we going to have to do a whole episode dedicated just oh, to yes. the changelog when, when it comes <laughs> that There's our whole new segment. So anyway, it's going to be a lot of changes, a lot of good stuff. So, of course, test it if you can. Of course, uh, PCBSD users, our July image, see, I'm already thinking July. That's why. That's what's on the brain here. Um, our July image we're working on. So I guess July is Friday, so we're shooting for that. But it's a holiday weekend, so if we're late, it might be yep. early next week. We'll see. But uh, soon. We have a lot of changes going to that, too, which, of course, is built off of Alpha 5. FreeBSD plus all the new yeah. XORG work, so you get the new graphics drivers as well. You need so, that. Yeah. Uh, rather than thinking, oh, I have to wait two more months before I get my hands on 11, really you should uh, start playing with that ASAP. Uh, the advantage is once, yeah, definitely. I think it's with, yes, uh, I think it is once beta 1 comes out, which will be next week, um, from then on you'll be able to use FreeBSD update to update in place and won't have to reinstall. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you're planning to use 11 on a machine, you might uh, be able to start as early as beta 1 and just upgrade in place uh, to keep up. Uh, and that will allow you to, you know, uh, in order, yes, basically, instead of waiting two months, start using it now, find the bugs so they can be fixed uh, in time instead of having to go out as a radar notices after and if you know you have some quirky hardware or something maybe a little rare out in the yeah. field, maybe give that a spin yes, ahead of time too. Because if there's something wrong, we want to find out now. Well, it's an alpha and not like yep. RC2, preferably. But, you know, <laughs> so. if you don't have hardware, uh, we're just as happy to have people bang on it with VMs. And, uh, and a VM's yeah, fine you know, too. Uh, That's right. I'd like to avoid making changes to the installer, but if anybody finds bugs, I will have to try to fix those ASAP. Okay. All good stuff, all good stuff. So, of course, looking forward to that release a lot. So, mm -hmm. hopefully, uh, it'll all turn out really well. 
Okay, let's move on. So our next story, we have a blog post about the experience of a new FreeBSD user, which uh, he's new. He said he's only been using it about two weeks, uh, trying to deploy some non-ported software to the system. So uh, specifically, he was interested in running TensorFlow, but of course not doing a port himself because in his words, first of all, I apologize for not supplying a port archive myself. After reading the FreeBSD handbook for creating a port, it's too complex of a task for me right now. I've only been using FreeBSD for two weeks, so I would like to not waste anyone's time giving them a terrible port archive and mess up their system. So uh, I read that, and I just my response to that yeah. is, first of all, good ports are often born out yes, of bad ports. But also, a port so, really can't mess up your whole yeah. system. So, yeah. True. That's why <laughs> we have, have the mailing right? list. We'd love to see it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so don't let the porting framework ever dot you. Give it a go since it's the only way you're going to learn how to write yeah. a good port uh, over yeah. time. And, of course, the Porter's Handbook is a good first place to start. A, but the community is really helpful, and too. The, there's a quick start guide. You don't – like yeah. most of what's in the handbook is dealing with the odd cases. Uh, mm-hmm. the uh, weird in particular, it looks like the project you're starting from is a GitHub. Uh, and making GitHub ports is like eight lines. They're super easy to start. Yeah, it's really um, easy. Which tag am I pulling? Yeah. What account? What repo? And it just kind of figures out yeah. the disk file stuff all for you magically. It's very good. But, uh, the, of course, in the article here, he then walks us through the changes he made to the TensorFlow code. Uh, which In this case, he started with the assumption that OSX was the best flavor to begin porting from. Again, being somewhat BSD similar. And uh, ultimately getting it compiled. Which, interestingly enough, he did end up having to do some patches to the code to make it compile on FreeBSD, which is all stuff you would do via the port framework as well, and you'd end up with some file patches in the file directories. Um, and there's even a nice command for that. I'll give you a hint. You type make space make patch. It generates the patches for you. Like, you don't even have to figure out all the diffs because, and yeah, the right Before flags. that existed, trying to get the files named right and the... And the yeah. I always screw that up. It was always like, which, uh, how many underscores? Or wait, wait, is it a dash? Uh, you know, it, it was just kind of confusing. And, and if you forgot and used the wrong diff flags, things went kind of yeah. sideways. So, you know, this, this works out very well. I, I am uh, much a fan of the new way of doing this. So uh, all in all, it's a really good tutorial kind of showing you how he did the porting process without doing the port because he pretty much after making the changes to the code he then uh, even showed us how to do the creation of a pip package and everything which the ports tree has yep. support for that as well too so a lot of our a lot of our ports are actually just pip packages that uh, have been repackaged as a freebsd package so uh, i'm thinking with maybe this write up out there maybe somebody can uh, help out creating a port of it now i mean it seems like the hard work's been done the diffs have been written to the code to actually compile it so at this point i'm making the port might be trivial yeah, like for somebody like, and uh, a good uh, learning to experience the code diffs he has here just need to say you know if defined apple or defined freebsd and yeah it would work uh, as well those yeah. are the best kind of ones right really simple so uh, definitely check it out. If maybe somebody's looking to uh, mess around with the porting system, this may be a good first one to start because, again, he's already done most of the work for you, especially if you already use TensorFlow or, or have some interest in seeing that land imports. Uh, definitely take a look at this. Okay, so next up we have NetBSD, a new beginning. Mm-hmm. I like this. We got uh, two NetBSD yes. stories this week, which we don't normally get enough NetBSD news at times. But uh, this post by James Deagle talks about his adventures with NetBSD 7.0 and making it his new beginning. He says, after a few months of trapezing around the worlds of SunOS and Linux, he said, I'm back to NetBSD for what I hope will be a lengthy return engagement. And while I'm enamored of NetBSD for all his, uh, he had some previous articles, mentioned reasons there, he's already thinking ahead of some problems 
problems to solve and uh, some ones that he had mentioned before, which it, that's good. He's already thinking how we can fix some stuff on NetBSD. So hopefully that leads him to becoming a good contributor there. But he then goes through some of the small nits he's been running into during the daily workflow. And part of the reason I wanted to mention the article, because I'm curious if we have any input that might help him with that. But uh, specifically, he mentioned YouTube audio wasn't working on NetBSD. And uh, he mentioned that no audio is playing up on YouTube through Firefox. And he wondered if Flash played some part. So first of all, I'd say make sure you're not using Flash. Well, I think his case is he's got Flash working everywhere. And so the fact that YouTube's not working suggests it's uh, the HTML5. It's like GStreamer. So, um, yeah, well, in that case, though, you need to check what options Firefox Mm -hmm. was compiled with because. there are different audio backends. So for PCBSD, we use Pulse Audio for it because that's what makes the WebRTC stuff work, right? Um, it could be using ALSA or OSS or whatever. Um, if it already is using Pulse, though, since that's kind of the upstream default, um, just double-check to make sure you install Pav View Control and check the mixer because a lot of times the audio is playing. It's just being routed to the wrong um, wrong port on the back of your system, right? Or the wrong channel. So uh, definitely check that out and check the compile flags. And if it's also, you can debug it that way. Um, the next thing he mentioned, though, was slow gaming performance. I guess he wanted to play Tuxcart and things like Celestia, which, um, to my mind, check your Xorg config. Yeah, I guess that, or check it, first of all, if it's CPU bound or if it's GPU bound, because that sounded like yeah, or the Yeah, it's probably missing video driver or something, or just not configured yeah, properly. Yeah. Correct. And then uh, he lastly mentioned some unspecified wireless issues, which typically end up being driver-related, or maybe you need to get a different supported chipset, that kind of thing. So usually those are solvable. But uh, all in all, that wasn't a very long list of things he was running into problems with. And I'm sure the YouTube problem, for example, is solvable. That's the kind of thing you hit the NetBSD mailing list. Somebody else, I'm sure, has already run into this on their uh, personal NetBSD box. But uh, yeah, it's good to see more people giving NetBSD a whirl and starting to uh, make the switch over. That's good to hear. Okay, folks, we got Beastie Bits and, of course, your comments to get to this week. But really quick, before we do so, let's mention the last sponsor of the show, which is going to be Tarsnap. Website for that, tarsnap.com slash bsdnow. If you didn't remember that already, I mean, they've been around a long time with us. So, of course, we're glad to talk about Tarsnap because they're the only ones who make uh, doing backups uh, safe and done proper. And uh, the cool thing is it's really lightweight and super cheap. So especially if you're backing up the same data where very small bits are changing. Yes, you only pay for the new bits you're using or for the bits you're using. Everything is deduplicated and encrypted before it's sent out over the wire. So you don't have to worry about somebody sniffing the transmission or getting access to you know, whatever's encrypted on the remote side by uh, stealing the keys, a rogue employee, that kind of thing that you might have to worry about with other backup services. And, of course, uh, Tarsnap doesn't just claim that. I mean, they put, their, they put the proof forward. They give you the source code. You can look at it yourself and see if it's doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing, which plenty of people have done. And uh, so far, it's looking pretty darn uh, pretty darn good. People have been using it and trusting it for years. And I know me and Alan both use it. And we can't recommend it enough. Yeah. So uh, I, if you've never Josh, looked into the algorithm that actually does the, um, yeah. the diff thing, uh, it's really amazing. Unlike some other ones where it does like block-based diffs, uh, where it's, mm-hmm. you know, if you had a bunch of 4K blocks and it, one change spans two blocks, you would update both whole blocks. Uh, Colin's algorithm finds just the minimum set of changes and does them. Uh, it's oh, based yeah. on his work uh, writing BSDiff, uh, which is a binary different mm-hmm. tool that's, uh, you know, the reason why when you install updates for software like Firefox, the thing you download, it's a lot smaller than the whole installer and so on. Yep. And, yeah. 
it's definitely good code, good software, and a good service. And you know, you'll you'll thank us later at some point down the road when you lose a disc or you know there's a cap- catastrophe, you know, fire, theft, yeah. whatever. You know, there's a lot of reasons your data can go away. There's not very many good ways to get it yes. back though. Tarsnap is going to make it easy. Just make sure you hold on to that encryption key because if you lose that, you lose your data there on Tarsnap too. That's that's the only catch, which is one I'm perfectly comfortable living with because that means nobody has access to my data. So it is a very good trade-off. Anything else you want to add on that, Alan, before we move into Beastie Bits? Okay. So let's move into Beastie Bits here. So we'll rapid-fire these at you guys. won't spend too long on them. But uh, first up, uh, reproducible NetBSD. According to this article here, they're about 77.7% of the way. That's Mm -hmm. pretty darn uh, specific. So it sounds like they're getting really close to having a fully reproducible build, which Mm -hmm. I think is fantastic in all the BSDs. I issue this challenge. All BSDs should try and do this. Yep. I would love FreeBSD to do it. I think Open just having reproducible builds solves a lot of things in my mind anyway. From security audit standpoint, um, from being able to trust you know that the binaries I put up on the net are actually built from a specific revision of source code. Nobody's uh, you know inserted anything along the way. Mm-hmm. So uh, definitely, this should be done. Yeah, it looks like their uh, kernel. Uh, ends up being completely reproducible and a couple other things too. Mm-hmm. Um, I checked the results of this uh, for FreeBSD, but something's gone wrong there and it's uh, zero out of one files, uh, which is not correct. No. Yeah. But I don't know if they archived the older uh, week's mm-hmm. results because I'm sure that uh, the FreeBSDs had fairly good results. I know that Edmas and a bunch of other people are working on that and I imagine it's uh, one yep. of the projects that will keep being worked on as we go forward. Okay. Cool. Well, let's move on to the next one here. So the next one we have is a create a FreeBSD virtual machine using QEMU, but then you actually run it using mm-hmm. XHive, which sure, Beehive in this yeah, case. Yeah, uh, you could use either um, in this case, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. But it's basically a link over to uh, GitHub, which uh, the GitHub walkthrough has a kind of a just the commands you would run, how to use brew to set it up, which, of course, you're using OSX, Homebrew, and XHive in this case. And uh, once you get it set up, you run QEMU image to create your raw disk images, and then you do the installation, et cetera, et cetera. And when it's all said and done, of course, you end up with your raw disk image. And then from there, you can fire that up over an XHive. And he walks you through the, I'm not sure who did this actually, but uh, whoever the person is walks you through how to set that up and even supplies a nice little shell script where you can just point it at your uh, raw disk image, supply the options, and boom, XHive's now booting your free BSD yeah, or whatever. They show a bunch of hacks you have to do, like switching the, the FS tab to deal with the fact that under QMU, it was ADA0, but under Beehive, it's going to be VTBD0, right, for, for Dio block device. Mm-hmm. And that your network interface will change from, like, you know, EM0 to VTNet0, et cetera. A couple little things like that. But, yeah, with this little script, uh, you can get that going pretty easily. Uh, and, yeah, almost all of it is the same as uh, uh, on Beehive. Just Xhive is the one for OS X. Nice. Okay, well, check it out. I know there's a lot of people out there who have their MacBooks, mm-hmm. so this be a good thing to play with. Okay, so we wanted to bring this link to you. I know there's a few of you still out there, you uh, diehards hanging onto that hardware, but if you're somebody who's got the PowerPC 32-bit, um, we have a package repository mm-hmm. for you for FreeBSD packages. It's unofficial, but there's about uh, 19,000 packages in there, a little bit mm-hmm. more than that, with more to come, and we have the link for that in the uh, show notes here. So definitely check that out. I guess you can still get those yep. packages if you need them. Okay, and we haven't done one of these in a while. Another NetBSD uh, 
uh, conference where they showed off a bunch of different hardware. Do you want to list some of the items they yeah, ran over there? Uh, they got a Alan? Sharp Netwalker PCZ1, uh, Zarus SLC1000, uh, Raspberry Pi 0, Pi 1, Pi 2, and Pi 3, uh, Sharp W03, uh, Banana Pi, a QB board, and an IODATA MediaTek. Hmm, a bunch okay. of other things. They also have some uh, demo images together uh, and a bunch of other interesting things they were doing. So speaking as somebody who's here in the States, I think NetBSD guys, if any of you guys watch the show or hear me, this is the kind of thing if you could put a box of these together and send to some of your U.S. folks who could take them to the lo local yeah. Linux conferences. I'm thinking like the Selfs and the Texas Linux Fests and OSCon and whatnot. These are people love yeah. seeing gadgets, right? This is an attention getter and your booth will stay very popular and well trafficked. Yeah, like because uh, you have these the things. one build we saw wow. in Japan. Oh, they actually have BSD now stickers. Yeah, Yay. one of these pictures, they have cool. a BSD Now sticker uh, on the table in front of the thing. But one of the cool ones we saw in Japan, they had this little thing built in a Tupperware, uh, and it had a Super Nintendo controller or a Super Famicom or whatever. Uh, and yeah. when you press the different buttons, it made the Raspberry Pi do different things. Like read That's out right. the date yeah. with a, uh, a speech synthesizer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was pretty crazy. I'm, uh, you know. Uh, definitely cool. I'm not sure what I would do with something. Right, but like it that, basically but. <laughs> shows that how you can use uh, an input device like mm -hmm. that and and do things with it and, and trigger actions out of it. See, um, the speech synthesizer is yeah. cool. I like the idea. I want a portable one where I can like have a button or something I can press that do different things in the house, like turn off mm -hmm. lights and turn on certain things and whatnot. I think that could be cool. I'm sure they sell commercial systems for that, but doing a homebrew just seems like yeah. More fun. Well, you know, that's one of the things I can do with that Onion Omega. Is it's got the relay switches, and it, it uses. Oh, uh, I've yeah. already got those working in FreeBSD. All the instructions on uh, FreeBSD Wi-Fi. Really? So uh, okay. I've gone so far as actually uh, my plan is to. I have this like one dollar power strip you know just the basic power mm -hmm. strip uh splice it open and run it through the relay so that i can use the ethernet or wi-fi to turn the everything plugged into that power bar on and off uh because nice. you know at a minimum i will turn on and off these tetris blocks if i have to you know just yes. as an example okay well you're going to show us yes. that on a future episode uh, i'm sure <laughs> but i was hoping to do a little bit more than with it but that'd be a good start anyway okay Cool. Well, let's move on here. So uh, next up, we have Adam Leventhal of ZFS and DTrace. It does an analysis of the new uh, APFS, mm -hmm. which is uh, the Apple file system yep. here. Um, so, of course, interesting to get a ZFS developer's yeah, take on so, that. I wonder if we should talk about that more at length in a future episode. Uh, I've already matter. done that on my other podcast. So uh, oh, okay. if you, well, you want to... Analysis of there's, there's two different uh, articles. The first one he came out is the story of why ZFS wasn't the new file system or how it almost was the new one mm -hmm. on Apple. Sure. Uh, and so he had that out on his DTrace blog, and then he did this analysis. And then Ars Technica picked up this one and republished it on their site with his permission. And since then, they've also republished his why ZFS isn't wasn't the next uh, file system over at Apple. Uh, so they republished both of his articles and gave them uh, quite a bit more exposure, which is great. But yes, if you mm -hmm. check out uh, techsnap.tv from uh, two weeks ago and one week ago, our, uh, we have uh, in-depth sure. coverage of both of those, uh, kind of going through the story and so on. Uh, or you can just read the articles, whichever you prefer. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, check it out. I'm sure it'll be a fascinating read. Okay, so we have some bugs mm -hmm. to mention here next. So it looks like semi-bugs, a June meeting. We have a summary yes. of that. Um, uh, Walk through, basically, uh, uh, Michael Lucas gave an overview uh, about 
what uh, happened at BSD Can and uh, answered questions because you know quite a few people that didn't mm -hmm. get to go add some questions and so on. Uh, but some of the interesting technical, social, and cultural activities that take place at the conference. I learned about a very unique sure. and quite rare Canadian edition of the ZFS Mastery Book. Uh, I don't did I ever talk mm -hmm. about that on this show. How many of those did you get? There were only by the five way? copies in total. Uh, those are going to be worth something, uh, my so, friend. Get those signed. One. Uh, Michael okay. Lucas kept one. I'm keeping one, and I have two, which are undetermined what will happen with those. So, uh, I want one of those if you if you're agreeable. I'll take one because I think that's really uh, I, cool. I that's think, a rare. Those are yes, really unique because there's only five in existence. Uh, the yes, one of them I'm going to donate to the EuroBSDCon auction, uh, and the funds for that uh, okay. go to the Paul Schenkeveld uh, Memorial Travel Grant. Uh, and oh, that's uh, good cause. The first ZFS book was actually dedicated to him because of all the help he gave me, mm -hmm. uh, and and so on. So. Uh, that one, but yes, that leaves one, and uh, I don't know. I'll we'll have to decide something really good to come up. If with I that. could maybe <laughs> steal that away from you, like that would be yep. cool. I'd have to yes. get it signed by you guys again, but yeah, that is pretty neat. Okay, so moving on to the next uh, bug we have here. So Knoxbug announced their next uh, round of, I guess, uh, meetings here. They're skipping this month, June. They're going straight into July because uh, the organizer had some personal stuff mm -hmm. come up in June. But it looks like they're going to be doing a talk on In Math We Trust, using cryptography to provide identity assurance in the mm -hmm. digital world. So definitely, if you're interested in crypto and whatnot, you'll want to see if you can get out to the uh, Maryville, Tennessee uh, Public Library where we're doing Knoxbug here uh, in July. And uh, I will be there, and I know a bunch mm -hmm. of the folks from the IX office will be as well. So you have to check that out. I think we have a ZFS talk the mm -hmm. following month. So it's going to be good. Going to be good. Okay, so it's time to get into feedback and questions here, Alan. Indeed. So let's start. I think uh, first up this Andrew. week was uh, Andrew. Okay, he says, uh, hey, guys, quick question on jail management from fo uh, following up last week. The IO Cage GitHub page says it's undergoing a rewrite. I've heard a bunch of things saying it's being written in Python, then Ruby, the latest I heard was Go. Do you guys know definitively what it's being written in any ETA on its arrival? So I'll actually field that because I've been working with Brandon on that. So, yes, it's going through a rewrite and it's being rewritten in Go is yep. the plan. So uh, Go is the language. Brandon's already done a bunch of the work kind of to prototype it and um, – we're looking at splitting it into two Go projects. So we'll have a Libio cage, which has an API where you can send JSON requests in and mm -hmm. do all that via nice. the API. And then, of course, there'll be an IO cage front end, which will be a CLI. And then the Lib, we have interesting plans on merging that into other things. But we'll talk about that at a later time when we get closer to a release. But uh, actually going to be meeting with Brandon and a few of those guys here in the next couple of weeks and discussing this at length. So no ETA yet. Give us time. We'll work on it. Hopefully, there'll be an ETA announced here in the near future, kind of a, a rough schedule. And, of course, I think they're going to be doing all their work on GitHub, so you'll you'll see it as yep. it starts uh, happening and landing there. Uh, they say, uh, P.S. on the topic of jail managers, on SmartOS, they have a single tool to manage both zones and jails. Do you think mm -hmm. uh, something unified like that is a good idea or would ever happen? It, it could. Um, at the current the current way we're looking at doing IOCage, it'll just be the jail management. However, Brandon's then also, we're going to do a uh, beehive management part as well. I'm just not sure if it's going to be under the IOCage name or if it'll end up being like a lib beehive or something and go. You know, I, it's a tough call. There's, there's so much things work to do. that are similar. There's a lot of work to do, but there's just enough similarities, like maybe with some of the ways you do networking setup and teardown, but then the way you start and stop, completely different. The way uh, you build 
containers, you know, as a disk image versus a jail is very different. So uh, unsure. Will to be determined. We'll wait and see how the jail bits go, and then see how much of that can be reworked into VM management. Yeah, um, you know, I've been torn on a couple of things. Uh, Easy Jail works great for me for almost all my uses. Uh, the one thing I've I've actually started hacking a little bit lately is making it support different base jails. So I actually have a machine that has a FreeBSD 9.3 base jail and an 11 Alpha 5 base jail, and certain jails use one, and certain jails use the other. And, and making that easier mm-hmm. would be cool uh, and some other stuff. But at the same time, it's like, well, you know, the jail system's moved on a bit, but I'd really like to fix the jail config file to be UCL-based, and that would yeah. iterate it yet again, uh, but make it possible for other tools to work with it more easily. And at the same time, it's like, well, I don't really need base jails so much, right? Back in the day, the idea was extract the base system out and and avoid having multiple copies of it to save space but mm-hmm. the 200 or 300 megabytes of the base system isn't a lot of space nowadays uh so is there an advantage to keeping the base system separate and it's like well there is when i do freebiz the update on once and all of my jails are updated uh versus having to do it separately for each jail but at the same time sometimes it's like i would like to have different base versions uh, and so separating them has an advantage, but combining them has an advantage, and I don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, I don't know. Well, like I said, we'll, I think in the next six months, you'll see a lot more yep. information about this start to land, and it'll be publicly done on GitHub, so you'll see exactly what's going on. But yeah, the current plan is go-based and uh, go from there. So, And it will be called IOKH, too, last I heard. So. Okay, so next up we have uh, Florian who writes in and says, Hey guys, I've done some qu- a quick search for Beehive on ARM, but I couldn't find much info besides a GSOC proposal who, from someone who did three GSOC projects already, so he didn't qualify anymore. Do you know anything about this? He says, A platform like ThunderX would make a nice host to run VMs for building and testing on ARM 32 and 64-bit. Having FreeBSD and ZFS underneath would be really neat. So that's a good question. I don't know if I've heard anything um, about Beehive on ARM. There have been talks at conferences. I think there was one at Asia BSDCon this year, right? Well, I mean, there's been talk about it. I don't think I've seen anything land, uh, though, have I you? I don't know the actual... Heard, I mean, heard of anyone having a demo of it I don't know how anything. far along it is, uh, but um, I'm pretty sure it was, on, it was at Asia BSDCon this year uh, that there was more talk about it. So, I don't know. We'll have to okay. track down the person and ask them. <laughs> Somebody needs to come on the show and yes. give us a talk about the status mm-hmm. of that, what it takes, and where it's at. Yeah, I think that would be that would be really neat, though. You know, uh, as ARM sixty four is actually the hardware is starting to actually ship now. Uh, to the point, yeah. um, okay. you know, I I've, there there's a machine that I was looking at buying because it's because it's only mm-hmm. a couple hundred dollars. Well, or more than a couple hundred dollars, but less than a thousand dollars. And you know, ARM sixty four, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. Of course, <laughs> I imagine I'll use so, it as much as I use my raspberry pies and so that's why i haven't bought it yet. true it's kind of a novelty thing until you find some yep. really good use for it um the other part of the question he says another thing is the github integration of the freebsd project wouldn't it be a good fit for the foundation to sponsor somebody to automatic to automate linking uh, the github pull requests and then of course pull them in a fabricator or on a build yes that's um, all course, on the list Blixilla. uh the main problem is yeah. finding someone who's willing to do that work uh there was someone mm-hmm. started a project to automatically turn github pull requests 
uh, and issues into Bugzilla patches or uh, Bugzilla issues. And if it was a pull request to attach a patch to Bugzilla, although I think for pull requests, uh, integration with Fabricator makes more sense. And separately, there's been uh, people trying to do Fabricator hook up into our Jenkins to auto do the builds uh, for mm -hmm. FreeBSD based Fabricator reviews too, not just the ones that come outside from GitHub. But yes, all those things are on our list of things we'd really like to do. Uh, if you in particular have experience with these tools and would like to work on that, uh, we'd very much like you to get in touch uh, because I think um, some of these are definitely issues that the new FreeBSD core team would like to see handled. Uh, and yes, we can likely get funding from the FreeBSD Foundation for someone to, to finish that work. Uh, it's just a matter of actually finding someone who has the uh, the credentials and the ability uh, and, and, and the desire. To and do the it. desire. Yes. We want someone right? who wants to do it <laughs> uh, and, and knows enough about the tools to be able to do it. Uh, and we would love to do that. Uh, another one I've seen mentioned mm -hmm. that people would like is uh, fixing the command line tool uh, for Bugzilla on FreeBSD. So you can submit bug reports uh, uh, yep. from the command line. I know a bunch of people. With an attachment yeah. and stuff would be neat. Uh, basically replacing the old send PR. I saw some people complaining mm -hmm. that that doesn't work anymore. And it's like, yes, but most people can what? use a website. But anyway. Should be. Still exactly. be nice to have. Uh, so yeah. Okay, well, I'll let you, uh, I'll move to the yes. next one. Actually, it's short. Okay. I'll let you do the last so, two. Uh, so okay. he said, uh, so from Clint, he said, uh, follow up from one of your questions this week. He said, if you just want to build a few packages in a repo and use package dependencies whenever possible, Synth makes this very easy, much easier than Poudreur. Uh, so this opinion. is for mixing. Uh, uh, so when you want to build your own packages, but you want those packages to depend on the pre-built packages from the repo, not build all the dependencies themselves. Uh, I didn't know Synth could do yes. that. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, Synth can definitely do that, and it is easier to deploy and set up. So, yes, sorry we didn't mention yeah, that. Yeah, I've last never actually answer, used it, so I didn't know. There you go. But I know you do. Yeah, I've used it. It's a lot easier mm -hmm. to use. It's just that that it doesn't use jails, right? For the because again, it's, it's meant it's for shoots. building the packages for this computer, where Poudreur is actually meant for mm -hmm. building the packages for every other computer. Yes, yes. <laughs> so okay, so, uh, well, let's yes, move on uh, to the next one here, Leonardo. Leonardo. Says, Good morning. My name is. Uh, Leonardo Souza, and I'm a Brazilian and a fan of FreeBSD as well as PCBSD, and uh, is the founder of the Mundo FreeBSD site, uh, MundoFreeBSD.com.br, which is a site focused 100% uh, on FreeBSD content, including uh, PCBSD and PFSense, and so on. He says his desire is to spread as much as possible of this information uh, and platform out to more people who will know about the system. Uh, in my native language, there is a specialized site for FreeBSD and PCBSD that have updated documentation often. Uh, for this very reason, uh, frequent searches in other language, and for this reason, uh, he has two requests. One, uh, he'd like to receive materials in any language on the PCBSD and FreeBSD so you can uh, translate, edit, and publish uh, those for FreeBSD, and uh, to disclose as much information about the platform as possible, and uh, so on. So he'd like uh, more things to translate, if I'm reading that correctly? Yeah, or more translated things, it sounds like, that they could host and publish so they could yeah. get the word out of not for non-English. Yeah, uh, speakers, I know the FreeBSD project, uh, documentation project is working on a new translation system based on Poodle and actually being able to uh, get more of the documentation translated in a more timely fashion. A lot of the translations we have are rather old and they're it's very labor-intensive mm -hmm. to update them, uh, and we're hoping that the Poodle-based system uh, will make that easier because it definitely seems to have worked for PCBSD, okay. right? 
Sure. Yep. It has worked. It says, English is not good enough to understand uh, all of our videos. You'd like to uh, understand everything that's spoken. So is it possible to write uh, at least the main points from the videos? Uh, we try to do that with the show notes and have bullet points about what that, we're talking about. Well, so it's not like we have a script we're reading yeah. off of here entirely. So it's not like we have a transcription yeah, um, of what we say. At one point, somebody had but, talked about doing a transcription for us uh, as practice because they were going to be a court reporter or something. But that never panned out. Oh. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. yeah. If you'd like to do that, that seems like I an know, awful lot of work. Uh, yeah, it's a lot <laughs> yeah. of work. But if somebody is willing to do that, that'd be great. Because uh, I know we also have some uh, hard of hearing users that would uh, benefit from that. Mm-hmm. And just obviously the searchability of the text would uh, be great. Be and better. So on. I would start with the yeah. show notes though first, or maybe if somebody could run our our show through like some kind of uh, you know speech to text translator. Uh, if it gets you ninety percent of the way there, part of the way. I don't know if it's maybe it's off by default though. Okay, but uh, yeah, definitely at least get yeah. the show notes. You can at least get a, enough of the gist of what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, like there we try to, to, to bullet translate. point uh, the 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 main points we talk about in each article and and give you mm-hmm. enough that you can go and read the article that we're talking about in the case. Okay. And lastly, Zachary writes exactly. in about uh, installing to a VM. So he says, just a quick question. I've been slowly been convincing management that FreeBSD is a superior technology when compared to something like Linux. Uh, besides it is, and I made uh, the move about a year ago, uh, but I have several boxes that for reasons Alan is talking about on the show need to run uh, as a Linux box. My question is, is, is if there is a way to make the actual installation of the physical computer and move it into a jail or VM running on Beehive. Uh, we have several boxes that we could uh, repurpose and use uh, to be able to do so. And they contain important information that would need uh, that we'd like to be able to snapshot with ZFS. Uh, if there is any way to make this move currently, maybe a script or something. Uh, so you can image the drive into a Zvol or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. So there are probably better ways to do this, but the hacky way to do this uh, in the file system on the machine that you want to move. Uh, use DD to fill some file with just dev zero until the drive is completely full. So this overwrites all the slack space uh, with zeros. Mm-hmm. Well, not not the slack space, but all the free space with zeros. Uh, then you delete that file and you get your free space back. Uh, now, when you image that drive, you get lots of zeros. And when you're writing that to the Zvol on ZFS, and if you have compression turned on, when it sees strings of zeros, it automatically knows that it actually doesn't compress those. It turns them into what's called a sparse spot or it basically sparse, turns yep. them into a hole um and so that takes up zero space rather than actually having to compress it where we take up a small amount of space uh and so mm-hmm. this means that the zvol will end up containing only the data that was actually there uh so we end up with a zvol that's a, uh, a byte for byte image of the original hard drive and then you fire that up in beehive or could you grow the zvol yeah, you can grow you it as well it. okay uh I don't know if that would be easier or not. Well, uh, the reason I say to use the zero thing is so that the amount mm-hmm. of space taken up by the Zvol isn't the two terabyte size of the original hard drive. But oh, oh, I the got amount you. of I space, got you. The free space yeah. of the original So the, the Zvol, you, would, you can create okay. it as two terabytes or whatever the size of the original drive is. And then you can actually mm-hmm. um, um, lower the reservation, but not the size. And then it won't, it'll basically sure. be thin provision from then on. Um, and then, yeah, you can just DD in it. Uh, or if you have a better imaging tool uh, that can work. Or if it's just, you know, a yeah. simple uh, regular Linux file system, you can use Dump Restore or something to that effect. You think somebody would have a couple scripts yeah. out there that could do a you lot know, of this if, for if you? If you can uh, 
do it, you can always just use tar or whatever and, and recreate it in the virtual mm -hmm. machine. But you can literally do a byte-for-byte -byte image of the drive uh, if that works better for you. Uh, and the, the zero trick sure. will allow it to uh, re, uh, not take up any of the free space on the ZFS ZVol so that you can consolidate, you know, uh, three machines that each have a two terabyte hard drive under one machine that's only like three terabytes or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, little tricks oh, like cool. that. Uh, oh, don't slick. have a script to All do right. it, but there, yeah, there are physical to virtual scripts for like VMware, but I don't know of something like that for uh, for Beehive or, or Zen. Uh, but you sure. could even go that route. It's a little roundabout. But if you use the VMware uh, physical to virtual script, you end up with a VMDK file of the original machine, then you can use the QMU or VirtualBox tool to convert that to a .raw and then write that to the ZVol. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know if that actually makes okay. sense, but... Well, after you've... If you successfully do this, write yes, about it. So make a blog can, post. You can share with others how exactly. you did it, and then you'll get a mention on the show, which is really cool, and you can impress yes. all your friends. So, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Okay, folks. Well, that actually wraps up the show for the week. So, uh, of course, as we close, just the same old reminder we tell you every week. But just so you don't forget, or maybe you're new here, we do yeah. have new folks who tune in, which is really good. Um, first of all, send any questions or comments, or if you have any show ideas, topics, if you see stories floating around the net that you think should be mentioned on the show, send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv. That's really the only place we monitor. So try and send everything there. We don't necessarily hand reply to everything that comes in there because a lot of times we sit and then put it into a future episode. Like questions like uh, ones we just got in feedback here. Yep. You know, we didn't necessarily reply to them via email because we want to talk about it on the yes. show so we can all benefit from the, the knowledge transfer there. So again, send everything to feedback at bsdnow.tv. And of course, uh, stories are really important too. But even more important are interviews. We really do need people to come on the show so we can uh, do some interviews. So if you're working on anything cool and new, there's a lot of neat things that are happening in FreeBSD 11. There's some Beehive stuff. NetBSD developers, you in particular, we got some good NetBSD stories this week. So we need to see if we can get some NetBSD users or developers maybe to come on and tell us about this, uh, what's happening in NetBSD land. But uh, anyway, do, you can also do that by sending uh, email to feedback at bsdnow.tv, and we'll uh, get that scheduled with you. And it's real simple, yep. real easy. Call, Skype. It's not painful yes. at all. You don't We're have to worry gentle. about it. Me and Alan don't have to fly there and, you know, duct tape you and make sure you don't escape. Yeah, you're not it's, Paul Hennigan. It's really good. So. <laughs> there you go so anyway we'll look forward to seeing you guys same time next week <laughs> <laughs>